0: punishment issues today, uh, beginning with the uh, sentencing process. It's important to realize, of course, that the modern penitentiary and sentencing is a relatively recent phenomenon in history. It's developed uh, uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, Michel Foucault gave the idea it was part of a broader process of social control. And I think, think it's quite interesting that of the four major uh, theories of of criminal uh, punishment, we went over the first uh, class, what, three weeks ago when we started this unit. Anyone remember what those four are? Four four roles of punishment. Retribution. Retribution, which is a way of saying punishment. What else? Deterrence. Right. Two more. Rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. A relatively new goal, and the last one—it's sometimes called incapacitation. Uh, basically, to get the cr- the idea that you're not going to deter crime, but at least if you get the criminals off the street, they won't be committing crimes while they're in prison. And you know, these four, of these four, you can say that retribution is the only one that has universal support. Right? Everybody thinks that. You ought to punish people for the sake of punishing them. I guess the idea is revenge. It's not, don't worry, I didn't mark you absent. Uh, it, 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 it strikes me as sort of paradoxical that retribution where has the broadest support when in fact you know religious morality preaches forgiveness. Mm-hmm. But I guess the distinction is made um, that in religion, uh, it's up to God to forgive, not to human beings, and uh, you know That has to do with paradise, but right now you know, you're on the earth and so you, you operate that way. But you could easily say, think, you know, you ought to be more lenient or forgiving. Yeah? I was going to say, some people that are, religiously think religiously like, they that in way. Well, yeah, that's right. In, in the United States in particular, it, you could make the case that the Constitution says you should not at least explicitly invoke religion. You might be inspired by religious values and goals and ideals. That may influence your thinking, but in public discourse, you don't say, OK, well, the Bible says this, therefore we should do that. Uh, and that's true of the United States. It's true of Europe. Um, in most of the world, most countries have had a period of non-secular history. We're the only country that's you know at least two centuries old where it was forbidden from the start not to have an established religion. But obviously, or even paradoxically, religious. Life and values play a bigger role in the United States than most other democracies, even though it's always indirect rather than direct. It's, you know, if, if you think privately about your religion, your pr- religion makes you think you, you, you believe x, y, or z about public policy, then indirectly you would uh, have a religious influence. Deterrence is the idea that if you punish someone, not only will you punish, punish them for the sake of making them suffer and therefore give a sense of uh, solidarity to the victims that the person didn't get away with it happily living af- ever after. Uh, but you know, you will not want to commit another crime because you have uh, faced the prospect of going to prison. Now, the article cites this very interesting discussion of the Quran, and specifically Saudi Arabia. And I've always been intrigued by this discussion. If you had a chance to look at the reading, the argument goes that the hudud punishments, the hudud is a, a word, I don't exactly know what it means in Islam, but a lot of Muslim countries have Hadood ordinances or uh, uh, proclamations that says we're going to follow the Quranic form of punishment. And th- that is a form of punishment that in the West, or in the most of the developed world, is considered to be uncivilized. But when you think about the argument, I often ask myself, is it really uncivilized what we do or what they do? In, under hudud punishments, uh, they're very severe short punishments and it's hard to get them you need for example rape four witnesses and there's always this aberration that uh, you know, if, you, if, a, if a male could produce four witnesses that you know, said the woman was practicing fornication rather than being raped she could be stoned to death because the punishment in Hudud for adultery and for, uh, ra- for, or for rape for that matter it, is stoning to death Now, that's a death punishment, and that's not the one that's typically invoked to advocate who ordinances. But say, a whipping um, or some other very short term physical corporal punishment, flogging, the argument is it's brief, it's concentrated, you suffer like crazy, and you'll never forget it. Empirically, it's argued that it works. And if you look at the argument in the chapter, it says that Saudi Arabia had you know, X number of burglaries prior to instituting hudud punishments in the 1930s. And then by the 1990s, in spite of having a higher percentage, it went down. And you compare that with Egypt, which instituted, under the influence of British colonialism introduced the modern penitentiary and fines and the more conventional Western-style forms of punishments. And it's increased 30-fold number of burglaries. Now, obviously, Egypt has evolved much more urban, much more populated. And those are correlates of increased crime rates as well. But you have to ask yourself, how effective has our system been? And that's, in a sense, the theme of the first of the two chapters, chapter 10, entitled, After Conviction, The Sentencing Process. And we can say that, on deterrence, it's failed. right? Because what happens? The argument is uh, unlike Hadood punishments, if you go to prison, you know, you get used to it. And it seems kind of normal to you. And for some people, objectively, it's not even worse. If you have trouble getting a job and feeding yourself, you know, basically there are limits to what they can do. You can no longer have prison labor. Uh, Countries that have ratified ILO, International Labor Organization, treaties. Uh, forbid prison labor, and, and it basically doesn't exist hardly anywhere off. It's Now it's just voluntary and actually doesn't pay very much, but gives you enough to, for example, you know, if you're in detention, you can call your family on the phone and pay for your phone calls, because all your other basic expenses are already paid for. So why should you get a lot more money than just sort of the incidental expenses you might want to have to have a slightly better existence inside the prison? But you know what happens? You get used to it. In some cases, it's not so terrible. Only death row, where you put in solitary confinement and you know with the, the noose hanging over your neck all the time. But most, you know, pe- pe- prison sentences. Although people get raped, people get beat up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, probably most prisoners, you know, have a very boring but predictable life. They get used to it. And in some cases, it's a school for crime, right? Because you have organized criminals, career criminals, in there who are some of them including the mafia are committing crimes from the prison you know conspiring with people who come and visits <coughs> to do things on the outside or there's petty crime inside you know uh, illegal trafficking in drugs and so forth that somehow gets smuggled in during visitation visits or I don't know how yeah um, they also have Guys, while they're there? They learn what crimes because it's, it's a lot lesser level crimes, not huge, large crimes. But they try to figure out from the guards, from the system, what they can do once they're released in there because they play softball, they're on a flight football team, they work on the crews doing landscaping for the airport base. So it is they get used to that lifestyle. And it's easy for them, and they, you know, several of them have gone back a couple of times. Yeah, I, I, and the work <laughs> is not mandatory; it's voluntary, no. and they and they get paid dollar an hour or something. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, they don't have to pay room and board and gasoline, so you know they may end up saving a lot more money than you and I save, you know, and a lot higher salaries, which they is. They see all the all the new movies. They have a movie theater on the base. So they see all the new movies. But these are for for felonies or misdemeanors. For felonies, it's a federal prison camp. Yeah. A couple of. You know, when I was in New York, Rikers Island is the pits. It, it, it was a jail you won't, don't want to spend any time in. But they do have cable TV. You know. And uh, you know, a lot of people can't afford cable TV, uh, at least. Or they have cable TV, they can't afford something else. Um, <coughs> obviously, recidivism, the rate of repeat offending, is very high. And the worse the crime, the higher the recidivism rate. It is also true that for some reason, hard to explain, uh, the rate of recidivism drops dramatically after the mid-40s. That leads some people to speculate a biological cause of crime, or at least a correlate interacting with other factors. Or it just may be, you know, uh, I mean, I don't know. I I didn't notice my hormone levels going down 10 years ago. But, you know, it it, it just could be that uh, at a certain point in your life, you know, you get resigned to your fate uh, and you just don't want to spend the rest of your life in prison. You, You see the end of your life you know, it's there, it's, obviously you see it at age 5 and 10, but when you get to be 40 and 50, maybe you say, well, you know, I only got X number of years left, why do I want to spend them in prison? Whereas, you know, up to 30 or 40, you know, you don't really, until you t- reach the halfway point, you don't start seeing the end, and so maybe you, I mean, that could be more psychological than biological. Or it could just be that, you know, your energy level goes down. Most people, um, you know, in their 40s or 50s are not in particularly good shape, uh, you know, they, they, have a lot, they have a lot of accidents, they get hurt, uh, and it takes a long time for them to recover. Uh, if, if you stay in shape, then you know you spend all your life working out and getting in shape, and then you say, where did my life go? I spent it all working out. So I don't know which is better. Uh, I'm inclined to think that it's better not to work out, die sooner, but enjoy your life, than to always be working out and never having any free time. But that's, that's a subject for another day. Um, so recidivism rates are 90% for kids, males in their 20s. It's a terribly high rate. Uh, and it, it, it's, it, it's really striking that public opinion hasn't come to terms with that, You know, uh, uh, what did Al Gore call his movie, The Uncomfortable Truth? Truth. Inconvenient, inconvenient. inconvenient Truth. I mean, there are a lot of inconvenient truths. I mean, aside from global warming, there's nuclear weapons. <coughs> Another inconvenient truth out there that people are ignoring—you know—the the, the globe is going to commit suicide unless they do something about nuclear weapons. I mean, it's just—it's only a matter of time before one bad incident happens, and the next time it's not going to be Hiroshima-style bombs; they're going to be something worse. Anyway, another inconvenient truth is the prison systems are a complete failure from the point of view of deterrence. Right? If the criteria—if if this is the goal that you think is most important, which is just not even to Make people feel bad about their crime or suffer uh, or to want to have a new lease on life, but simply just to lower the crime rate, you got two options deterrence or incapacitation. And both of them are incredibly costly, right? Deterrence is 70 grand a bed per year. And if it's a high security prison, it's over 100 grand a year. That ain't cheap. You know, that starts to add up when you've got a million and a half people behind bars in the United States. Think about it. Um, t- now, many of them are in jail for short-term sentences under a year, but say we got a million people behind bars for long-term sentences. What's a million times 70,000? Uh, How much? Uh, is it in the billions or is it only in the millions? I, I, I mean, I can actually add it up. We got, what did I say, you got one million. Times 70,000. 1, 2, 10. 10. Thousand million. I can't 70 billion dollars a year. 70 billion dollars a year mm-hmm. just to keep people in prisons. Now that's that's actually just what we pay in Iraq a year, but that's another story. But you know, seventy. We spend between Afghanistan and Iraq, we spend five billion a week. Five billion a week, a week or a day, a week. I don't know who's going to be the first to use nuclear weapons. it it it, it, it it's completely unpredictable, and hopefully, it won't lead to retaliation. The worst thing is that when one attacks and another attacks, and then you get the world freezing to death because of the temperature inversion. <laughs> I mean, it's actually not, the, the, what, what was really scary about these is if you have multiple nuclear weapons, it's not just the radioactive fallout, but you can't grow anything in the world because the world becomes so cold. And inevitable. It's not inevitable, but it, it's likely right now unless we do something about it. That's why I'm happy Obama had this conference, but, you know, it doesn't mean that's going to ever lead. It's also maybe unrealistic, because as long as that's one other country has them, it's like nuclear. It's like chemical and biological weapons, right? We've signed both treaties, and theoretically we have no chemical weapons. Now, you're telling me I don't think, you think the United States doesn't have illegal chemical weapons stored somewhere? I'm sure we do. I'm sure we got biological weapons, certainly in the CDC. I don't mean the weapons, but the, the germs in the CDC right here because they're the highest rating of intelligence protection that you can have in the United States, the highest level number of armed guards and stuff. It, for for sophisticated enemy in the United States, we're at ground zero, because if they blow up the CDC, uh, we're all going to get smallpox and, and 15,000 other types of diseases, and it ain't pretty. Um, so this particular inconvenient truth that the prison system doesn't work is contrasted with the system of Europe and Japan, which are described in the chapter. And it's worth thinking about that just for a moment. Um, first of all, Europe, oddly enough, according to the chapter, regards uh, short-term sentences as being ridiculous. And yet, when we try to reform in the United States, we usually invoke Europe to reduce sentences to short term. So. Two observations. One, our perception of Europe is different from what Europe perceives itself. Second, uh, what we seek to achieve in the United States has nothing to do with alternatives to incarceration, at least according to the account of this chapter. We just want to reduce the sentences as opposed to getting rid of them. Um, Now, I know that there are halfway houses and other proposals for nonviolent offenders, arguing that, you know, Drug crimes in particular, but other types of crimes where the victims are primarily the people who are committing the crimes, and therefore they're not harming other people. They're harming themselves. That's an indirect cost for society, but at least it's not a direct cost. They're not holding you up. Of course, a lot of drug consumers end up doing armed robberies, and maybe, you know, they are, if they do that, then they are. A threat, but that doesn't mean every drug transaction, which is just an exchange of money for drugs, uh, involves direct harm, only indirect harm to the rest of society. Uh, in Europe, what, what do they do? Well, first of all, the big difference the chapter says is they use uh, a system of day fines. And it's an interesting concept. Uh, you can get one to up to 60 or even 100 days of your income fined. So instead of saying, you know, this sentence, and the guidelines use you know a thirty dollar penalty or a three thousand dollar penalty. Um, traffic offenses, you know, on the books are a couple hundred bucks in Atlanta, and I don't even know the extent to which they vary them. I think if you plead guilty, they give you the minimum, which is probably three hundred bucks for speeding or something. If you have no prior record, I'm not exactly sure how it works. In Europe, what they do is they try to say that you know it's really unfair for poor people to pay a fixed rate. Um, and you had a, a situation where if you were rich, you just pay off the fine and you never had to go to prison. In the United States, uh, we have the situation where the poor who can't afford the fine, you know, they give them a choice. You can pay the fine or go to prison, they go to prison. The idea here is that you pay uh, according to one day's income the fine That's the rate of the fine, and then you pay the number of days depending on the nature of the crime and the degree to which the judge wants to raise it or lower it uh, accordingly. So that meant that the rich would pay, they got a three-day fine, three days of income. And this is still not exactly perfectly fair from the point of view that we've just mentioned about the poor because still uh, a wealthier person has got more money and can afford you know, the luxury income. You know, if it's three days off the top of someone who's affluent, but someone who's poor is just barely getting by, three days of income, even though it's less money, is still uh, very much more difficult to bear. But the, the question is why, you know, since Japan, Scandinavia, most of Europe have day, system day fines, how come this has never gotten never caught on in the United States at all? Uh, and it's not exactly clear, other than the fact that you can come up with a bunch of theories to explain it. One theory the chapter mentions is the idea that in the United States we had slavery with all of its violent punishments and abuses uh, and the ignoring of the law on the books anyway that were supposed to give slaves some rights. Slaves were not supposed to be murdered, theoretically a slave owner murdered a slave you know, couldn't do that and could be severely punished according to the law. That didn't happen very often, but I, I know it happened a few times. Uh, what the punishment was, I'm not sure. Uh, that, beyond slavery, just the fact that we had a, you know, a colonization process where there was no established state expanding west, so you, it was cowboy culture, and the gun, you know, through the barrel of the gun was determining you know, who had power out there, and that's deeply part of our culture, and we did, you know, you can't let it out, and third, there is the view that the Second Amendment was designed uh, to be a check and balance on tyrannical government. You compare that with many European countries that didn't even have guns for their police officers in the case of England until relatively recently. It's obviously a different uh, notion. Um, now, how would that explain why we don't have day fines? Well, the argument was not so much that they're opposed to day fines. As we're, just, we're just committed to prison. Right. We had our major reform. We got rid of flogging. We got rid of, 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 you know, France's guillotines, and we don't. We never had internal exile, and we never had uh, slave labor camps. We did have penal colonies, internally. Unlike you know, the British sent people to Australia, and many people did not survive those penal camps, and they got sent there for pretty minor debt uh, and, uh, and other types of crimes that in our constitution were unconstitutional and the French in Guyana and French Guiana colony that was their uh, prison camp. I think Dustin Hoffman was in, what was that movie? Papillon. Papillon, a French labor camp, I don't know where, but in the Caribbean? In Guyana. In Guyana. It was a great movie when I saw it, but I've forgotten all the details. Um, I guess he survived it somehow. but you know, it seems to me that day fine is a pretty reasonable approach, but the United States, they don't want people paying day fines as an alternative to prison. We want to reduce the sentences occasionally, or we want to make them longer. Uh, certainly in, by the 80s and 90s, with the crime rate peaking in the early 1990s, at the same time that the recession was really bad in the early 1990s, most states were building a lot of prisons at enormous expense and putting people away for longer rather than uh, shorter terms, and that was supposed to be a reform from the point of view of that determinate s- sentencing compensated for the irrationality and inequality and arbitrariness of discretionary sentencing. And these things obviously go in cycles because you know you can then you have determinate sentencing and all the costs associated with that, longer prison sentences, taking people from supporting their, away from their family and taking that family's support economically while the person's in prison, which is, you, know, you never think about that. You know, why should children and women, which is usually the case, you know, be punished by putting someone behind bars for a long time? Um, better to have someone do a day fine like they do in Europe. They, just, they don't ever go to prison. They, they continue to go to their job. And they pay the, a certain number of days' wages um, to the authorities and, you know, that person is stigmatized, has a criminal record uh, but the person also is, continues to be a functioning member of society and I'm sure their supervisory uh, approaches to making sure that something terrible doesn't happen uh, for such criminals. Yeah? So what do they do if somebody doesn't have a job? I don't know, the chapter doesn't say but I assume that, you know, they postpone it until you can pay it. You can't force someone to pay if they don't have any money, right? So well, I mean, I guess like they could send them to prison. I mean, I I think probably most people would rather do a day fine than go to prison if you have a choice. But in most of these countries, it says that they do this instead of a uh, prison. Um, I mean, what would, what happens when you don't pay a fine in in the United States? Technically, you're in contempt of court and it's on your criminal record. Is the state well-organized enough to make to note that you didn't pay your fine? I'll bet you many states are not. But most people would rather pay their fine and not have the threat or the potential of having that on their record, and it would be additional punishment. Um, the third is rehabilitation, and that, you know, we hear so many stories of people get rehabilitated in prison, but they are the exceptions that prove the rule that most people don't get. Rehabilitated because the recidivism rate is so high. Uh, But there are some remarkable stories of people who are in prison, you know, who they find God or they find a skill or a trade. Uh, And of course, the people in prison who've been framed either intentionally or by accident uh, and are innocent. We have 220 known cases from the Innocence Project of people uh, mostly for rape, but possibly for other serious violent crimes who were were completely innocent of the charges. So you know the real figure is much, much higher, and so maybe those people weren't bad people to begin with, and though maybe technically they're being rehabilitated, um, I don't know, if I was sent to prison, I think I would, instead of turning good, I might turn bad because I'd just be so angry at the the system. Uh, Rehabilitation was thought to be, in the late 19th century, a, a, a legitimation of prison. You know, why, why would we spend all this trouble trying to get people re, you know, in prison if they're, not, if they're gonna come out and commit crimes again? So let's rehabilitate them so we won't have high rates of recidivism. Problem is, it just doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Well, first of all, you know, how, what, someone comes to you an hour or two a day, you're still in there 22 hours a day and you take away eight hours for sleeping, you know, the majority of your day in prison is not time spent being rehabilitated. Now, you may choose to use your free time to go to the library, but unless you're good at reading and enjoy it, you probably won't go to the library. You might watch cable TV, but you know, what do you see on TV? Violence, right? So that's not a, a particularly good lesson. Um, I think the other point is that prison is a form of social control. It's not listed here as the four pur- five purposes, in addition to incapacitation, which is simply just taking the criminals off the street where they can't commit crimes while they're in prison. Um, social control is a controversial uh, statement, but critics would say that the prison system uh, is designed to stop deviance, not only formal criminal deviance, I'm not talking about political stability, the other function that the police and criminal justice systems are sometimes called to uh, participate in. But here we're talking about social deviance. And the problem here is whether or not people are being prosecuted because they are dissenters. You know, The Magna Carta in 1215 was established Uh, to protect people who disagree with the authorities from being abused by the criminal justice system. Or whether you're being imprisoned because you're gay, or black, or white, or purple, or some other reason that have nothing to do with crime. Uh, It's often alleged that labor relations are a typical forum for this, where People go on strike, and they arrest you for some charge. Maybe they even provoke you to use violence. And then you're in prison. But the real motive for getting you arrested was to stop you from, being, from striking in the first place. Uh, this is something that's hard to study empirically. It's much more of a philosophical, ideological view. Uh, it depends a whole lot on your view of, of your country and whether you think the country is a free and open one where you can believe and be whatever you want or whether this is a society that forces conformity uh, and you know while there's certain latitude and freedoms for political speech and for uh, unusual behavior there's sort of unwritten rules you know if you want to have an alternative lifestyle go to the center city don't go in a small town and uh, have a little or you know go way off into the countryside where no one's around uh, and once you bring it into certain areas you know that, They'll find some reason to charge you with a crime. Because, you know, there's probably nobody here. There are probably so many crimes in the books where you could be prosecuted, right? And in in authoritarian regimes where there are guns everywhere, let's say, you always just arrest someone on gun charges because everyone's got an illegal gun. Because or or you bribe someone to get the the license for the gun. Generally, people have many more guns than they're allowed to have, so that's, that's an easy way. Or you could just plant evidence, illegal evidence, that you know, the guns and ammunition on someone's property, or you can just go beat up the person and say, oh, they were resisting arrest. And it's my word against your word. Um, I think in the United States, historically, you know, there are certainly incidents of this going on, and not just the United States, every country, uh, how typical? To what extent? And to what extent today is a whole subject to debate. I suspect if we do have a much more acute uh, political crisis dealing with terrorism, for example, if the economy were to turn down again uh, and we go from 10 percent unemployment to 15 or 20, you're going to see a lot more police action to control behavior because people are going to be agitated. When unemployment starts to get to be 15, 20 percent, you can and there's no Social safety net let's say unemployment runs out after 39 weeks and you know occasionally they extend it to one year It's not like Europe where you can you know you get two to four years of unemployment compensation And if you're over 50 you got it till you retire. I mean, it's quite a different social welfare system They don't have the defense expenditures that we we undertake for example Um, so You know, Europe has a kind of social pacification from the social welfare system. You could look at it optimistically and say, oh, they take care of their unemployed. Or you can look at it skeptically and say, oh, they're doing it to prevent uprisings because they've had a history of militant labor actions and a history of Marxism within even the Western European context. And this is a way to buy off the working class from revolutionary behavior, which is much more typical of a post-feudal society like Western Europe than the United States, where if we had feudalism, it would have been in a plantation system for tobacco and cotton, but not uh, in the co- parts of the country that became industrialized. Now, sentencing practices have varied across the world from time to time. First of all, you have the issue of the death penalty. And it's clear that the death penalty uh, has been banned in Western Europe. Uh, technically, it hasn't been banned in Russia. Uh, at the time of publication of this article, it hadn't been banned in a few other Western European countries, but there hadn't been an actual execution for quite a long time. In the case of Japan, at the time of publication of this article, there were two uh, executions in the year of publication, but they had been resulting from sentences from about 10 to 11 years before then, and there had been no one else sentenced to death in Japan in that previous 10 years. So the United States like South Africa and Russia, are exceptions. According to Ziering, who's a famous criminologist, most countries go through a process where they have de facto banning of capital punishment for a decade or two or three prior to de jure legal prohibition of of capital punishment. And it looks like the United States just doesn't follow that trend, because we did have, for example, a great reduction in the number of executions in our country in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and then capital punishment was banned by the Supreme Court in 1973, but the, in a case involving Georgia, and then in another case involving Georgia three years later in 1976, the Supreme Court no longer declared it unconstitutional as a cruel and unusual punishment. And I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm being a political scientist. I don't think it's the textual reading of the Constitution that motivates these decisions, because, you know, anything that's, un- if you're doing, if enough states are executing people, it's never going to be unusual. Uh, you know, it just it has to do with the attitudes of the justices of what constitutes cruelty, um, and the argument. There are many arguments against capital punishment. It doesn't work. We make mistakes. Um, there's always the possibility of rehabilitation. And perhaps the most compelling argument, as costly as it is to incarcerate someone, it's even more costly to execute them. Because between all the appeals uh, and the delays and in extra incarceration, uh, it costs millions of dollars to execute someone. Whereas to keep someone in prison for 10 years would be $700,000. It's only a little bit cheaper, but it, it is cheaper depending on how long the person would have been in prison and so forth. It's also clear in terms of sentencing that the United States has longer sentences. You know, In Britain, the longest sentence is 11 years. We have you know, life without parole in many states in the United States. We have a typical 25 to life sentence, which typically, typically means most prisoners, since they've committed really violent penalties, will get the full 25 years, but they don't get life. Occasionally, someone who looks like they're rehabilitated. Or if the prisons get really overcrowded, then they'll start releasing people <laughs> in probation and parole, including people who committed murder and got the 25 to life sentence, which is the more typical sentence that's an alternative execution than life without parole. The United States is the only country in the world, the only country in the world that gives life without parole to minors. And we are the only country in the world that executes minors. Isn't that unconstitutional um, as of a few years ago? Oh, yeah. There was a case for the execution of minors yes. about two years ago. That's right. But up until two years ago, we were the only one that executed minors. And we still are the only one that, and we haven't had a case, that has life without parole for minors who kill. Well, for, for minors, and it's usually for murder, that sentence would be applied. Um, So the question is, why the American exceptionalism? Why is it that we have uh, more executions than any other country in the world, according to the chapter? I think now China and Russia and perhaps South Africa have more executions. It also depends on how you calculate it. Is it the number of people executed per 100,000 people? um, Or is it just the total number of executions? If you use the figure per x number of people, then you can easily also take into account the crime rate. And our crime rate is higher than other countries in the world, so you know, if you say if you control for the crime rate, then we don't look as bad. In fact, uh, in many ways, since we, we report many more crimes, whether we have more crimes or not, I don't know, but since we report so many more crimes than most countries in the world, if you take that into account, then we do not execute a lot of people. Let's say compared to the other, peop- other countries that have capital punishment. Now, why, why do we have this situation in the United States? Well, it we usually look to public opinion. And of course, the sources of public opinion is another issue of debate. But the United States generally regards crime, fear of crime higher than most other countries. Uh, there were two surveys that were cited. One was the question of um, what do you consider the worst problems facing our country? When that was done, crime was listed as number one. If you give uh, responses to the person surveyed, and you say, you know, various foreign policy issues, or the state of the economy, then crime usually doesn't come into either second or third place, probably third place. So depending on the type of question, which is typical of public opinion survey sampling, uh, you'll get different responses. But it's obviously clear that Americans care about crime a great deal. There's considerable fear of crime. Sociologists argue that the fear of crime is way out of proportion to the likelihood of being victimized by crime. But obviously, there's certain areas in the, uh, the country where or, or a city or what have you that are more dangerous than others. And, you know, sometimes you know you can't get away with going into those areas. Uh, and certainly the residents of those neighborhoods are the biggest victims of crime because either the, fam- you know, the members of the family get victimized or the kids get victimized and it really scares the dickens out of the whole, whole family. Uh, but there are other theories that say that you know, the United States worries about crime because we have more murder, more killings, because we have this history of the Wild West and slavery which is created, and, and the, the, the revolution against Britain which gives you know, greater legitimacy to having arms to protect freedom. And these are theories, and you can buy it or not buy it as you prefer, or as you think, or you have an open mind and say, maybe it's a little, like all these things, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. Um, Clearly, we grew up in a continent apart from Europe. We have a different history. So uh, as a colonized territory, we have a completely different experience than, let's say, societies that evolved from feudalism to capitalism, where the transition was much more ideological and political, where in our case, uh, we had a history where acts which are criminal now were not, and they may have been de jure criminal in the Wild West, and treatment of slaves by slave owners, and the use of militias in some way may have been de jure illegal, but de facto, they were not only tolerated, they might have been encouraged. And we certainly have this phenomenon in the United States of sort of the sheriff run amok, right? I mean, they may be the exception, they may be very much the exception, but you do have sheriffs who, you know, in the rural countryside are the law. You know, they basically arrest people, they try them, they're the judge too, uh, and there's no separation of powers. And very much, you know, in the case of the South and the civil rights history, uh, some of these sheriffs were Ku Klux Klan members, Certainly, the infamous example of Philadelphia, Mississippi, where Schroener, Goodman, and Cheney were murdered, uh, that sheriff was a member of the Ku Klux Klan and part of the cover-up, a case that did lead to a trial recently, even in the last year. I don't even know. And I don't, I don't know if there was a conviction or not. Prior attempts did not result in a conviction for various reasons. But I do believe, I think, they did convict the pers- one of the persons this time not necessarily the sheriff, but other people that were involved. Um, it does strike me odd, though, this argument about deterrence. You know, Given that prison doesn't work, why? Well, there's, there's an explanation that I would offer in addition, which is just given that rehabilitation doesn't work, given that we do get retribution, let's go for incapacitation. You know, in other words, we'll just say Okay, it doesn't work, we're still getting other goals. And the crime rates have gone down since they increased the prison population. Of course, is that a spurious correlation or not? What else has been correlated? Well, the economy was booming in the late 90s and the early 2000s until the internet bubble, which was about 2001. And then from about 2003 until 2007, we had the mortgage crisis, the economy was booming again. So did crime go down because of greater prison population? Or as some people even assert, because of legalized abortion, which reduced the number of youthful offenders in the population? Or just because the economy was getting better? Or was it a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of that, all combining together? It's also, as we mentioned earlier in the semester, uh, forensic science and police science, in particular police management, improved. And there's some dispute as to what the real record was in using modern management information techniques to deploy policemen in the neighborhoods effectively, whether that was the result or not. Uh, but I do think that probably all of these factors played an important role. Now, we still have one other possible explanation, and that is people are unnerved by the, the rate of non incarceration or punishment. That is, historically, half the murderers get away with it. Um, for armed robbery, it's a little bit less. For burglary, it's further less. And for theft, it's further less. And there's some dispute as to the numbers. Um, but it's, it's quite striking that in the United States, our conviction rate for murderers is so much higher than European countries. And why would that be? Well we have more murders, right? So you spend, you have X number of detectives in the United States, the number of murders that are solved increases on a percentage basis when the number of murders decreases. Why would that be? Less murders to solve. That's exactly right, right? If you got four detectives in the office and they gotta work on four cases, they can spend twice as much time on those cases as if they have eight cases. All of the things being equal, so uh, when the mer- when the crime rate goes down, then you get a better uh, conviction rate because you're able to solve more crimes. Uh, and believe me, you know there are lot lots of times where pe- these detectives forget about what cases are really active because they don't have any leads, but they're not going out pursuing leads either. So I think. In England, for example, where the uh, percentage of, rate, uh, of convictions for serious violent crimes you know, is close to 90%, a lot of it had to do with historically the fact that England had so few murders. Um, now, as England's crime rates goes up, and they also have the problem of Islamic-based terrorism, and they're focusing on terrorism, it'll be you know, curious as well as important to, to see whether these relationships still hold up or not. Now, the other final chat issue in the chapter is the insanity defense and the use of mental hospitals. Obviously, the practice in the Soviet Union was an absolute disgrace, where without even having serious trials, people were sent to mental institutions supposedly as an alternative for public relations to the internal exile or worse the labor camps in the Soviet gulag in Siberia in the eastern part of the country. But what they would do is just completely chemically ruin the person's life, make, turn them into amoeba, make them chemically dependent. And this was obviously a case of torture, among other things that was going on in these mental hospitals. But even the United States, the insanity defense, since the McNaughton case in Britain in the mid-19th century, which also was accepted in the United States, even though we had no jurisdiction, it was cited to the point where the insanity defense was accepted, at least according to the criteria that the defendant didn't know what he or she was doing when they committed the crime. Um, And the chapter points out that this wasn't put into place Right away, uh, when a president was assassinated in 1870, Garfield, uh, it was clear that the murderer, or the killer, rather, uh, had a whole series of mental illnesses and delusions uh, and was uh, sentenced to be executed. In the end, some doctors made a petition to ask that he not be executed, and so he was put in a mental hospital. Now, when you're put in a mental hospital, like John Hinckley has been, I don't believe he's been released, has he? for the attempted murder of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and he was inspired by Jodie Foster. He wanted to impress Jodie Foster by murdering Reagan. Uh, if he knew Jodie Foster was gay, maybe he wouldn't have been so. <laughs> anyway. Um, but you're, in a mental hospital, you have no sentence, right? You're there until the doctors decide that you have been. No, you're no longer insane. Now, some mental conditions are permanent, some mental conditions that you can be improved upon, but it, it's like if there's no formal review by the criminal justice system because you're now in the mental health system. And I don't really know what these mental hospitals are like that are used for prisoners, but they're not like you know, the local uh, halfway house for nonviolent offenders or the drug rehabilitation halfway house. They're prison-like, right? You're locked in, you can't get out. And sometimes you're put in cages and treated like animals. And if you saw the movie with Jack Nicholson, One Flew, um, over, a one flew over a Cuckoo's Nest, and other accounts of, of these mental hospitals, you can uh, uh, come to the conclusion that in many ways, or at least in some respects, mental hospitals are worse than prison. I mean, look, you're hanging around with people that are not altogether together uh, and unlike a halfway house where people can be mutually supportive and friendly to each other everybody's put up in a cage and if that doesn't make you agitated or per- per- permanently mummified I don't know what would be. I think it would turn me into a mummy of sorts I'm using this metaphorically of course not literally uh, but I do think that there's really something wrong with the insanity defense because although, it saves the reputation of the defendant from the idea that someone was a cold-blooded killer, or thief, or what have you. It's not clear the defendant is much better off, and there's much more arbitrariness, because now, which mental hospital do you get sent to? How long are you going to be stuck there? I don't think, as, as these things go, that they're likely to release somebody you know, who looks like he could be a threat to somebody else, because they're still ill, or. Maybe the real reason was because they committed the crime. Um, and I think generally, as we look to the next chapter on post-sentencing processes like probation and parole, for example, uh, we have uh, the notion that you know, people don't want to get caught in a situation where they're the ones that made the decision like Governor Mike Lukakis did when he gave uh, parole to a murderer. Uh, and then it ends up being the trump card in what some re- regarded as a rather racist political advertisement by George H.W. Bush uh, in the 1984 election over Dukakis, uh, where that guy committed a murder when he was out in parole. I mean, it was clearly a terrible thing, but you know the, whether it was appropriate in a presidential campaign the way it was portrayed in the commercial is another matter. I was uh, last uh, Thursday in, a, in an immigration detention case which I've done four of them in the last month. I do a lot of them. Uh, And in this trial, um, it's a situation, I don't want to get too much into immigration law, but there are three grounds for immigrants to to come to the United States to stay if they're uh, politically persecuted. One is asylum. You can't get political asylum if you've ever committed a felony in the United States, or what they call an aggravated felony. And uh, for the most part, that's, a reasonable rule, I suppose, uh, but there, you know, it, it is an aggravated felony to have a false passport, which a lot of people who are escaping persecution would buy in order to sneak into a country. Uh, and generally, it used to be that it was never used. But one of the people I defend, I, I was a test witness for two years ago. You know, he was convicted and served four years. The case I had on Thursday was this uh, Iranian Kurd who, uh, when he was in Los Angeles. Uh, he got demoted. He was in Iowa and he worked for a super target store. And when he went to Los Angeles, he only went to an average target store. And he was very proud of the fact that he worked in a super target store. I don't know really what the difference is, but I guess he probably got paid more. So according to his story, uh, he met a guy in the plane who said, Will you deliver this package to somebody for me. So he delivers the package for somebody. The German government discovered the package mailed from Germany had drugs in it, and so he was arrested and he had a four-year prison sentence for drugs. So he can't have political asylum. You can get withholding from deportation, uh, which would mean that you could spend the rest of your life in in detention. Um, but drug offenses don't qualify you for that. For the only way you can uh, pursue a case in the criminal justice system in the United in the immigration justice system, sorry, uh, if you have a prior criminal record. Uh, that's a serious felony, is through the Convention Against Torture, and in that case, unlike asylum, you know, you, once you get asylum, then you get a Greek card, you can apply for citizenship, and you're free. Uh, all you get from from on the Convention Against Torture is not to be refouled, not to be sent back to the country of origin. So all we were asking for was uh, that this guy not be det- deported to Iran. And we have what, we have Judge Pelletier, who's the most conservative judge in Atlanta, which is in the most conservative region of the country, as far as these things go, with the possible exception of the Carolinas. Uh, The case was postponed, so we don't know what he's thinking. But my guess is that it is possible that, uh, you know, if he grants withholding from deportation, he no longer has to worry about what this person does. Because it's up to ICE, the Immigration um, and customs enforcement agency, what used to be the, um, well anyway, had a different name prior to the Department of Homeland Security, Immigration Naturalization Service, is what it was called. Uh, so if he grants withholding from deportation, it's just a temporary deferment from being deported. If conditions get better in Iran for Kurds, which I think is unlikely, um, they could deport him in the future. and. He will be in immigrant detention. He's at ACDC, which is not a rock group, or, uh, but it's the Atlanta, uh, <coughs> anyway, it's the jail at, at Garnett M- Martistop, uh, but Atlanta Corrections and Detention Center. Yeah. Anyway, um, and they have a whole wing of immigrants in there. And they, they're basically the non-Hispanic immigrants who are being detained. And he could spend the rest of his life there if he wins the case. But we might win the case because it won't be up to the judge. So the same thing with probation and parole. That long excursion to give you a little insight into the rest of the immigrant justice system was designed to illustrate the point that uh, you know people don't want to be the one holding the bag for someone going out and committing crimes. Now there's a tremendous pressure right now to. Uh, stop the overcrowding of the prisons because with longer sentences, more people get sentenced for longer time and they get full. And they got to find a way out of them. But before we get to that problem, let's look at the evolution of the modern penitentiary. Um, it emerged in the 19th century as a reform effort. But for critics like Foucault, it wasn't just a reform effort. It was also an effort as social control. Because when you go in the prison, It's true you're not being flogged. You're not getting corporal punishment. You're not being sent into internal exile or into a prison colony or anything else that might be considered violent, abusive, and unacceptable. But you're in a building with high walls that you can't theoretically escape from. Of course, obviously, we have escapes. Much harder to escape from. You're always being watched, whether you're in your cell or from a high prison tower. Uh, you're brought out of your cell you know, in handcuffs in some cases or without, with, with limited form, amounts of freedom uh, and you, know, you never really feel like you have your human dignity. The idea here is that uh, the prison system is designed to punish you, it's not to rehabilitate you. Then around the 1960s rehabilitation came into vogue and they, they called it the Department of Corrections in many states. Corrections mean trying to teach you to correct your behavior. That may or may not be a desirable goal, um, depending on what you're being corrected to do. But certainly, it wasn't succeeded for the reasons that we've suggested. Um, But part of the problem was that the court systems became the center for many litigations for inhumane conditions inside the prison system. Uh, and so there was an effort to try to reform the system to make it more humane inside, even without all of the violent abuses as they were generally regarded by the West, as opposed to the Hudud ordinances of Islamic countries, which has the so, so, you know, sure and swift punishment that you never forget and seems to work, at least work better than our system seems to work with penitentiaries. Um, You know, two centuries ago, the idea was to make execution, like the guillotine, very visible and humiliating and very public. And if you go to the soccer stadium in uh, Kabul, Afghanistan, the Taliban, when they were in power, were executing in public. And they would have tens of thousands of people in the stands to observe them. Uh, Communist China today still has public executions in large stadiums for many people to observe. And the idea of a crucifixion in Christianity, sorry, rather the Roman Empire, rather, it was a Roman punishment, uh, was designed to make executions very public, very humiliating, very painful, uh, and so forth. Uh, and all of these things were regarded as abuses and humiliating and degrading, cruel and unusual, etc. So, one of the things that lawsuits did in the United States was to replace hanging which was the first of these punishments, which was declared to be unconstitutional because it was considered to be cruel. Because hanging takes about, I don't know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, didn't stop the International Military Tribunal for, uh, at Nuremberg after World War II for the West to use it there. But we had stopped using it uh, in the United States. Then we developed electrocution and gassing, and then after the history of the Holocaust, gassing in the United States certainly rang very bad connotations, and it too was regarded as cruel because you suffocate for three or four minutes, and that's considered to be a horrific way to go for these people. And so then we have developed lethal injection, this was supposed to, or electrocution came next, and then you had people frying but not dying. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be. Too, am I being too graphic? Or? <laughs> I think it's, I think humorous, at a little bit. It's what? So yeah, I think it's a little humorous. Humorous. Well, I, I, frying is the wrong word. I shouldn't have. But that's literally. I mean, what what happens to people is you know part of your body gets seared, but that your heart doesn't stop, right? So, now more recently we use lethal injections, and it's been progressively more humane. Originally, I think it was just one injection of some terrible thing, which would kill you over five minutes. Again, you had the problem with the five to 10 minute period. Um, and more recently, we know we've had a sedative that knocks you out, which theoretically you're not conscious and you're not aware of these things. But now there's evidence, first of all, that people weren't dead. 30 minutes, 45 minutes after these injections, not everyone is dying. And it raises the specter, since a doctor has to be present to declare someone dead, as with the, you know, the use of doctors in mental institutions to make decisions over incarceration, as whether the doctors are obeying their Hippocratic oath, first do no harm. Um, in any event, you know, we have lethal objection now as the main form of execution uh, for capital punishment. And that's being challenged in court. We have overcrowding in prisons. So, that unlike in many countries of the world, uh, you can't do in prison what you can do in jail, which is to put 25 people in a single room and have them spend the night there. From my point of view, that's worse than prison. Because, you know, how are you going to go to sleep at night when there are 25 guys in there? Some of them, one or two of them at least, is probably a killer. Um, And nobody's particularly paying attention or even cares what it's like. but in any event, you know, they, in prison, you're there for the long term. You're entitled to a cell. Uh, you're entitled to a certain amount of free time, uh, recreation, fresh air, number of meals, etc. cetera. <laughs> uh, and that was a result of lawsuits. Now with overcrowding, they basically say you have to release prisoners because it's beyond the capacity of these prisons. Now, most prisons in most states are well beyond the formal capacity because they are very, very overcrowded. But there is a point where even prison guards will say, this is nuts. You know, these guys are going to, there's a critical mass that can form, uh, and we, you know, they, they could get some weapons, and they could attack us and kill us. And it's certainly not safe for the prisoners, either, uh, since there's plenty of violent crimes being perpetrated in these prisons. Now, the first question that has to be asked, I guess, is, again, why do we have so many more prisoners than any other country in the world if you just do it on a basis of absolute numbers? On relative basis, we're a little bit better. Turkey and Austria seem to have many more prisoners on a per capita basis than most other countries in Europe. Even the Rep- Federal Republic of Germany has a fairly high rate, even though Germany relies on fines for short-term sentences. It does rely on prison sentences for long-term Uh, sentencing Uh, and the question is you know what what right should prisoners have you know if you want to have rehabilitation treating them like death row inmates is not going to rehabilitate someone right if you want someone to be functional on the way out then presumably you give them more rights and more opportunities to set themselves right and develop some job skills, because you know for sure that if you're an ex-con, you're gonna have a hard time getting a job. It's hard enough getting a job if you're a youth, because all around the world, much more than in the United States even, unemployment rates for youth are in the 30 to 40% range right now during this world recession, and obviously for youth in the United States, the unemployment rate is well higher than the 10% proximate national rate. What's going on? A girl was screaming. No. Oh, that's cheering, isn't it? Yeah. I hope it's cheering and not someone in distress. Do you have a question? Or? Yeah, I, I
1: have
0: a question. Yeah. Is there a maximum of the, the day fines?
1: Is there a maximum? Limit? What's the limit? Can they find you know, I'm
0: sure them? in practice it's an imperfect process. One of the reasons we don't have day fines in the United States is we have a hard time finding out what people make and earn. And I think there's less privacy in Europe. So they, they can just find find out. Obviously we could do it we could just you know ask for the place of employment and then now gar- take the wages the way I guess in divorce settlements they take the wages out of somebody's check um, there is a maximum in, 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 in Germany I think it's 60 days uh, they don't use it for very serious violent crimes right. It's meant to replace short-term sentences for misdemeanors and less serious felonies, I guess. Um, and you know it ranges from three to sixty, so you can obviously assume that, you know, if you'd commit any misdemeanor, you're out three days in Germany. Other countries it's only one day. It's literally a day fine. One day's work. Um, so for example, do you think that all prisoners around the world should have a right to visit visits? The downside is that you know visits Privilege some prisoners whose relatives are more willing or friends are willing to visit them than others. It also risks contact with the criminal world for career criminals to continue uh, their crimes. And obviously, John Gotti is a good example of that, where he unabashed—he's recorded. They actually tape record and videotape him, and he's shown saying all these things with all these people, and doesn't seem to intimidate him in the slightest. Second, you know, should prisoners have the right to make complaints about guards and prison officials for alleged misbehavior? I think the noise—I hear the noise coming from here, which would be um, the courtyard. So something's going on in the courtyard during the lunch hour, I guess. Yeah. There was a strike the other day. Something striking the other day downtown. Or there was a tea party the other day. Well, we'll. Fu- Okay. <laughs> okay. Maybe it's a tea party. Um. So, can you make complaints against prison officials or not? I mean, do, do prisoners have rights to assert alleged wrongdoing by prison officials? A uh, third. Um, can. Do prisoners have the right to have outside observers, like human rights groups and lawyers, come visit them to inspect prison conditions? Fourth, uh, what is a reasonable amount of services for rehabilitation? uh, Should prisoners have a right to rehabilitation? Even if if it is a tiny minority that actually rehabilitate, shouldn't you make that opportunity available to, to take courses, to get a job skill? Because otherwise, it's really hard for someone who is truly penitent, and wants to set things right to start out a new life. Um, would it, it probably wouldn't be constitutional to say people over 30 can get it, people under 30 can't. But statistically, you're much more likely to rehabilitate yourself if you're older than if you're younger. And people with fewer offenses you know, are more likely to rehabilitate than those with more offenses. So you know, prison unions, guards unions, don't like boards of visitors and other monitoring officials because they say they have no understanding of what's going on inside. That's a dangerous environment. These are hard um, The other question is, as prison becomes so much more ordinary an everyday experience, you know, that now that uh, 1% of the American population is behind bars at any moment in time, which means something like three or 4% of the American population goes behind bars in their lifetime, when you think about it, that's a pretty high percentage. And what is the effect of that? If prison is normal, uh, does that mean that our society is going to be polluted by that prison experience? If you look at the experience very skeptically and say it's it's a school of crime rather than a school of reform, uh, maybe we ought to radically restructure uh, this uh, effort and have true rehabilitation, which is to find alternatives, beginning with not only day fines, but using the day fines to provide reparations to the victims of crimes. Now, we do have payments by uh, perpetrators against the victims in the United States through the tort system. But if you put someone behind bars, they can't earn the kind of money that's necessary to pay back what the family has suffered or or the individual has suffered if he survives or she. So, if you have a situation where the person can at least go to their normal job, they may not be able to pay the true compensation, but they can pay more, and presumably more is better. Are we out of time? Oh, five minutes. Okay. So, two minutes. Okay, two minutes. Let me conclude. Look, no country can figure out this just right. This is no panacea, right? But. There's certainly a need for experimentation, reform, prison experiments, alternative to prison experiments. Those experiments have been going on for decades. Um, no country not only doesn't work, but no country is public opinion happy with the situation either. You go to Europe, uh, there's a lot of debate these days whether we should think highly of Europe or not so highly of Europe because their economic problems are worse, but they're supposedly more civilized than we are. They don't have the death penalty. Uh, they have the value added tax, they have less Um, I don't know, Wall Street cheating going on there, Uh, although I wonder if that's really true. Um, But the European public opinion is not satisfied that their criminal justice systems are working. They're just as dissatisfied as we are, but they do have less crime, but that may have nothing to do with the prison system or the release system. I do think that overcrowding is, you know, given the fact that we don't want to have increased taxes and uh, there is sort of a limit to how, much, how many more prisons are going to build given the size of the federal budget deficit, which is truly at a peak right now. It's hard to imagine that state tax is going up around the country. So they're going to release a lot more prisoners a lot sooner. So we're going to have not an experiment, but an actual uh, early release program where probation uh, officers, especially parole officers, parole officers being those that review those who've already done time, probation as a sentence in and of itself, both will be used to to reduce the population in prison, because judges will simply be told there's no space. uh, And the word will get down. Formally, you can't tell a judge what to decide in an individual case. But it's very clear that if the judges are all sentencing 25 to life, that these people in 25 to life are going to be getting out in 10 years. So far better to give a sentence that's more appropriate, like 18 years, that the system can absorb or six years for lesser crimes than giving everyone the maximum and then inundating the system with very controversial parole decisions where the parole officer is asked to make a decision, which unfortunately, because of the fear of someone committing another crime, leaves a lot peop- a lot of people in prison a lot longer than you think they would if they really have reformed themselves. OK, thanks. And uh, we'll have the meeting uh, of the groups at the beginning of class next time.